Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with legendary composer, arranger, and bassist Chuck Israels. He's well known for doing work with Bill Evans, along with John Coltrane, Billie Holiday, Benny Goodman, Coleman Hawkins, Stan Getz, and many more jazz legends. He recounts tales of being in the middle of the jazz flux, having dinner at 12 with Louis Armstrong, growing up in a music-rich family, what he is up to these days, and what he would like his enduring epitaph in the jazz world to be, along with many more surprises. Please dig this interview, my friends. Good. Hey, thank you for taking a little time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. Sure. So I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and dive right in here and get kind of a beat on what has been going on with you lately. Well, that's easy to find out uh, <laughs> because the, the, the website is pretty up to date. But uh, I, we've been living in Portland for the last five years, and uh, I have a five-horn band here, uh, with which I write the music for, and we we perform regularly in Portland and occasionally occasionally elsewhere and we have a couple of recordings out and are working on another and that's pretty much the story wonderful so did you grow up in cleveland uh i was i lived in cleveland between 1946 and 52 uh i from the ages of 10 to 16 what was that environment like for fostering a love of jazz for you? Did you see anything live? Was there anything in particular about Cleveland? Well, yes. My folks, uh, in 1948, my folks ran a, a concert series at Severance Hall called Popular Concert Attractions. And one of them was uh, a Louis Armstrong concert. And there was a Sunday afternoon and Sunday evening performance. And in between those two performances, we uh, there was dinner in the in the green room or where in in Severance Hall, and I had dinner with uh, Louis Armstrong and Jack Teagarden and Sid Catlett and uh, uh, Velma Middleton and Arvel Shaw and Posey Cole, and you know that was a pretty uh, for a twelve-year-old kid that was pretty impressive. Yeah, it was that kind of. At that point or after that point, was that when you decided that music was the route that you wanted to go, or did you always feel that way growing up, that music was your way? Well, I, I had uh, I'd been a, 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 a guitar player and cellist. I, uh, I was still at that point, and I played cello in the junior high school orchestra and uh, uh, studied with uh, one of the cellists in the in the Cleveland Orchestra, uh, and my my uh, my stepfather was a singer who to, who was the head of the opera workshop at the Cleveland Institute. So music was was very very much a part of a part of our lives. Yeah. And Paul Robeson was my kid brother's godfather, and he was a guest in our house, as were. Uh, uh, some folk musicians, uh, Pete Seeger and the Weavers and Red Belly and Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. There, were, there was music all around me, so it's not at all surprising that I that I became a musician. So when you were a kid, did you think these guys were the coolest thing ever, like having dinner with Louis Armstrong? Was that just something that you thought, man, these guys are the coolest people in the world? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that the kids I grew up with in Cleveland Heights... 
Uh, it was remembered. Well, you, there's no reason why you should remember. But in 1948, the Cleveland Indians won the World Series. Yeah. And all the kids that I knew, they knew all the, they, you know, we knew all the players on the team. I can probably name most of them now, all these years later, because things stick with you that you learn at at that age. Yeah. But the same kids that knew all the that knew who played second base and who Jim Keltner was the third base player and uh, uh, Bob Lemon was one of the pitchers. You know, we all knew that. But mm-hmm. they, those same kids also knew the names of the first chair players in the Cleveland Symphony. Wow. So I think uh, that was a good culture in which to grow up. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of thing would that that you don't find that uh, in in this in this era. No, absolutely not. So did you ultimately pick the base or did the base pick you? <laughs> kind of mutual. We went back to New York. I went to the High School of Performing Arts where I played the cello. And uh, then I went to MIT thinking I was going to be an engineer. And uh, I went to the MIT orchestra and there were 12 other cellists and no bass players. And I had a cello. I had nothing against the cello as an instrument, but I didn't like my particular cello. Uh, It was not a particularly good sounding one. And there were basses in the instrument room and no bass players. And, well, am I going to play on this not so good sounding cello with a dozen other cellists, or can I pick up one of these nice-sounding basses and be the only bass player in the orchestra? <laughs> so that's that's when that happened. That and the and and the fact that I was a guitar player, and that there were uh, jazz musicians, young jazz musicians in in Boston uh, and Cambridge, who's uh, who needed bass players. Yeah. So it was kind of the the situation. Uh, pointed me towards the base. Right on. And I learned it. I learned it quickly. It was uh, it was a pretty quick transition. Yeah. So your first gig out of college was working with Bud Powell in Paris. What was that experience like for you? Well, I wish I wish I could say that it was uh, that it was wonderfully enlightening. But the truth is that Bud had been so so beaten up and abused by by both people and circumstances in his life that there wasn't much left of him. Hmm. So he was he was kind of operating on automatic pilot and yeah. it was it was kind of sad and a, and a little bit depressing. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, I was really lucky to be in Paris in 1959 when there was a lot going on, yeah. and when uh, I, I got to play with Lucky Thompson and and Kenny Clark and uh, and some wonderful French musicians, Daniel Humer, who's still around, and a great great drummer, uh, Marcel Solal. Uh, a wonderful trumpet player named Roger Guérin, uh, Barney Willen, the American, French-American tenor saxophone player. Lots of, of 
wonderful musicians were there, and I had uh, I was this kid bass player who could who could play, and there were there were some good French bass players too, but but there was something about being an American that that attracted people to me. I played well enough, but believe me, so did so did Pierre Michelot. So it wasn't that I was that much better than than uh, than some of the bass players that were there. It's but but I was lucky, and I I got quite a bit of work. Yeah. Well, speaking of pianists and luck, you got to play for a while with one of the finest to ever grace jazz, which is Bill Evans. What did he do to mold your music mind? How did he, being around him and performing with him, how did that shape the way you became a player? <sighs> it, maybe that's hard to put into a few words because Bill's aesthetic world was aligned with all of the things that I found appealing in classical music and jazz. Mm. And he had a, a a balanced combination of things, uh, things that came from Bud Powell and things that came from Chopin. And, yeah. and, and that's what my life had been up to that point. Uh, deeply ingrained and trained with, with, uh, with both of those musical streams. And when I first heard Bill, my initial reaction was, was, oh, there's somebody who realizes things that I can only vaguely imagine ought to exist. It's not that I didn't appreciate uh, Charles Mingus's music or Ellington's music or, or Monk's music. Uh, or Miles Davis's music at the time. I did. I loved them. But there was something about the particular balance of elements that that uh, that are in Bill's music that was very like my musical background. Yeah. So I was immediately attracted to that. Yeah. And then... Working with him, little by little, I discovered how it was that he was achieving the results of making music that had that balance. Yeah. I didn't really learn enough about it until some years after leaving, playing with him when I was studying composition and going back over his music and and learning it better. Yeah. Yeah. And you also have played with a lot of other luminaries in jazz, notably Coltrane and, and Benny Goodman and Coleman Hawkins and Stan Getz. What was it like to be around those? I mean, that's a real formative time for you in your life, and that was a real hotbed of jazz going down at the time. What was that doing for you as a professional musician to be around the likes of those individuals? From the perspective of this, of, of 2015, uh, looking back on that, that seems an unusual and remarkably uh, rich environment, and it was. But what's harder to understand from 2015 is that that was normal. Yeah. It was yeah. 
unremarkable to us then. Who knew that those were the good old days? Yeah. We didn't know that. We thought that this unusual circumstance in which popular music was uh, created by educated people and aimed at sophisticated and educated people and that when jazz was just an extension of this a more complex form of this already uh, fairly sophisticated popular music we didn't know that that was going to that that was unusual and that it was going to disappear in the mid 60s when the baby boom generation reached adolescence and 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 uh 13 year old sensibilities took over everything yeah we didn't know that was going to happen uh, yeah we thought that uh Paul Porter and George Gershwin and Harold Arlen and and uh, Harry Warren uh, and Duke Ellington and Johnny Mercer and Hammerstein and Hart and Richard Rogers. We thought that was why wouldn't we assume and Frank Lesser? Why wouldn't we assume that that would be popular music? Yeah, that was popular music. There was no um, there was no Bob Dylan, there were no Beatles, there were no, uh, there were no children making music for other children. Yeah. Children didn't have money. Children couldn't buy that music the way they can now. Yeah. yeah. And and so the the whole atmosphere uh, was. Um, look, I, I mean, there are, there are some things to 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 look at here. In the history of the world, great art has normally been produced and subs produced for and subsidized by wealthy and educated people either in the church or in government. Yeah. In monarchies, in in uh, in religious institutions. And popular art at in those eras didn't normally produce anything of of enormous value and it's all drained away and what do we what what remains with us what has been durable it's been the classical art that's that was subsidized by wealthy educated people yeah in in some unusual times like the time of elizabethan theater and the first half, more or less the first half of the 20th century in this country, in those unusual times, popular art has been great art. Those are remarkable moments. And I grew up in the middle of one of those moments. That was an enormous good fortune for me. Absolutely. And and when you look over your career and you think about the prolific periods of creativity, would you say today your output and what you're putting out there is one of the most prolific? The, the difference between what I produce and what I see and hear around me is that mine is is connected to a continuum of, of musical principles and aesthetics and ideas, and it doesn't leave out anything. And a, a great deal of the music that I 
that people are listening to now and made by younger musicians uh, omits from its vocabulary of ideas things that I consider to be essential for making really good music. So a lot of the music is is uh, is weak and uh, impoverished from my perspective. Well, I can't live in that world uh, that you know, once you know something, you can never unknow it. Once you've been exposed to uh, Bud Powell and Bill Evans, uh, it's not possible to to accept that somebody gets a MacArthur grant whose piano playing and music is vacuous. And, and it is, in fact, uh, that is a real emperor... Emperor has no clothes uh, situation. There yeah. is a revered, a revered, rewarded, uh, attention-getting uh, musical personality whose output is about as nutritious as a piece of chewing gum. Interesting. So let me, let me ask you this question. You have played with what the world would consider a whole slew of jazz heroes. You personally, who who has been what you would consider your jazz heroes? Uh, certainly Bill, Duke Ellington, Monk, Oscar Pettiford, Red Mitchell as a bass soloist. It's an enormous list. And lately, lately I've become so interested in in the organization and uh, kind of overall control of music that that I'm more and more interested in Ellington and Horace Silver and Bill as an organizer and composer and his music was very well organized. It was organized in such a way that it gave the, that it was always solid and complete and it gave the illusion of being all made up on the spot but it wasn't. I admire and love that illusion and I I try to without even really thinking about it I know that that's a that's a profound basis for for my own musical output that I want it to be beautifully complete and balanced and organized and when people hear it I want them to think how did they all make that all how did they all get together and Make up such a perfect thing all at once. Uh, so, uh, and you know, if you hear a late Beethoven quartet, you sometimes get the same impression. Yeah. That those guys are making up the music. Yeah, absolutely. Let me ask you this. What's what's the greatest thing about waking up every day for you? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> a great family and... Uh, uh, I mean that the same thing that <laughs> and being here, you know, at, at my age and feeling good and, and having something to do that feels uh, that feels uh, relevant. And in a way, I have to make up my own sense of relevance because yeah. the world is no longer giving giving me back the same um, reinforcement that it did when I was when I was young and playing with Bill. There are few people who uh, who are hanging on the edge of, of uh, every th new thing I do the way they were uh, 
the way we were when we were kids waiting for the next Horace Silver record or the next Miles Davis record uh, or the next Duke Ellington record or Monk record. We, We were... Or Bud Powell or Charlie Parker, we were we were hanging on that. Now uh, people are not looking. I don't have a crowd of people uh, paying attention to my music, and in fact, jazz has kind of fallen in the cracks between popular music and uh, and subsidized classical music. And it will eventually, because it is not going to go back to being popular and because using present day popular music as the basis for improvisation does not produce uh, doesn't produce much of uh, of interest uh, jazz is going to eventually uh, either slip away or get picked up by by the system of subsidy and support that that classical music has. Yeah. And I hope that the situation is the latter one, not that I think it's ideal. Ideal was how it was operating when it was when it was in its heyday, but but we are not we're not we're not going back there. We can't remake that moment of history. Yeah. Lots of things have changed since then, including yeah. the power of the 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 economic power of adolescence. So let me ask you this. You've given the world so much good music. You've had such a, a a beautiful career in the jazz craft. How do you want the world of jazz to remember you and what you did and the music that you gave to it? <laughs> do I have to think that far ahead to my desk? No, no, this is not a swan song. I'm thinking about that. <laughs> no, no, no. This is this is you kicking back in a in a in a, in a comfortable chair with a glass of wine, and the memories are flooding through you and 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 they have to be beautiful memories and there's so many people that have been touched by your music and your contribution i i guess it's more of just how do you feel about that what what you've given to the world of jazz you know if i could put it into words i wouldn't have to make the music yeah so i i i'm not i i'm, I'm not re, i'm not trying completely to avoid the question it just it it's a question that's that's really best answered by what I put into the music. Amen. That has to that has to explain itself. Yeah. If if it doesn't explain itself to at least a reasonably educated listener, then I'm not doing my job well. Yeah. And I do believe that I make enormous daily concentrated efforts to do that job as well as I possibly can. And so I hope that the message of what I want to be remembered for is carried in a little bit in my bass playing and more and more in what I'm doing now with the ensemble music that I write and with the with the musicians that I work with and train to to make a certain kind of musical statement. Yeah. Those things they really have to stand on their own. If they require a bunch of explanation, uh gee, uh then then I don't think I don't think they're complete enough. They yeah. need to be so complete that when you hear them, 
they tell you why we did it, why we played like that, what what the emotional and intellectual content and spiritual content of this music is has to be has to be pretty apparent. I want them to remember me for the music. Yeah, that's a beautiful answer. That's exactly that 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 captures it right there because that is the essence. And that right there, I think, is a great way to end uh, the interview. But Chuck. Thank you for opening up and giving me a little bit of your time and your world. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Chuck for his extensive jazz catalog and a vault of really good jazz stories. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.